Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey everybody, welcome back to Create Out Loud. I'm Jen Loudon and I have a special bonus episode for you this week that I just had to squeeze in because I couldn't wait to share it with you. This is with science journalist and best-selling author Annie Murphy-Paul about her new book, The Extended Mind. Now, if you've been listening for any time, you know that what motivates me to record this podcast, Create Out Loud, is to try to get into the creative process of all kinds of different creators, to bring tools and insights out that if they fit for you, you can adopt to yourself. The Extended Mind interview with Annie is a little bit different because The Extended Mind, the book, is the toolkit you need. And so I I talked more about her discoveries. We talked a little bit about her process as a science journalist and putting together all these incredible amount of information. In fact, the first bit is is right about that. You're going to love it. But then we really get into all these tools that her research has shown us that we can do to extend our mind. And basically the idea in our culture is that our minds have to stay in their little craniums and we've 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 maxed that out. We have maxed out our cognitive abilities and we have to learn to extend our mind. And no, we're not just talking about technology. In fact, we don't te- talk about extending our minds into technology at all. We're going to talk about the body. We're going to talk about groups. We're going to po- talk about neuroarchitecture. Who even knew that was a thing? Anyway, you're going to hear me gush a lot. I'm really excited about this book. Annie's amazing. So without further ado, let's dive in. In researching you, as well as reading this incredible book, The Extended Mind, that I'm so excited about, and there's, I think this is one of those books that I'm going to, I mean, I've already dog-eared it and filled it with all my post-it notes and everything, but this is a book I'm going to just refer to over and over again in my life. Mm -hmm. It is so profound for creatives. But I want to talk about that epiphany that started the book. You were going to write a book called Brilliant, and then you wrote... Then one day it hit me, I was looking in the wrong place. I was writing about the brain when the real action was elsewhere. What was that moment like? Were you freaked that, or were you excited or were you both? Oh, both for sure. I mean, in a way it was the culmination of a, of, of many slow steps that led up to this epiphany as, as tends to happen. I, I had been struggling to write this book about the science of learning, which I titled brilliant for years, literally years. There was so much good stuff and I knew it had to fit together in some way, but I, I couldn't make it work in the, in the frame that I had originally put it in. I think creative people are familiar with this problem. You we know, talk that, about that a lot where you yeah. suddenly, you feel like you're circling a donut or a <laughs> void or a volcano or <laughs> the abyss. The abyss, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then you realize, oh my God, I was going at this backwards or from the wrong direction. And that is scary because you have to rethink a lot of what you, a lot of your assumptions and a lot of the approaches that you had been taking. And it's also incredibly exciting because you're like, 
finally, okay, I know how to do this. It's going to be hard. It's, there's still a lot of work ahead, but now I know where I'm going. And that's, that's what it was like. When the new book, The Extended Mind started to gel, was it the point? Was it the understanding that it were too limited in how we think about the brain? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can you take me in just a little bit closer to that? Yeah. You know, the problem that I was struggling with for so long was that I had lots of interesting pieces, but I couldn't fit them together into Mm -hmm, a whole. Into a whole. Yeah. And specifically the problem was that with the science of learning, I had a whole bunch of techniques you know, helpful, useful, really interesting techniques, but I didn't want to write a manual. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to write a instructions for learning better. I wanted, and I need, I realize this as a writer, I need a big idea to pull it all together and for me to get really excited about it. Writing and creating is so hard. It's such hard work that I think, at least for me, I need the passion and the excitement as the engine that pulls me through all that hard work. Yes, yes. Without that, it's like, it's just drudgery. Did you just hear how excited Annie was? I have to be passionate about it. I have to be passionate about my idea. That's something that I think we can get a little confused about. One, I see creators not allowing themselves to be big and ambitious and to grapple with what is that big idea. Sometimes I think we're afraid of taking things on that are bigger or more complicated. And I get it. I mean, I am too. We have to find the things that fit our life and fit our kinds and styles of working and creating and thinking. But sometimes we're shy shying away from what we really want to work on, express, explore, because we're afraid we won't be able to do it justice. And I think we won't be able to do it justice. Our ideas are always bigger and purer and beautifully realized in our imaginations and what really comes out. But the other thing I see happen a lot is that when the passion wanes, we think something is the matter and we give up. I've coached a lot of people through long creative projects, especially books, You get bored with your own work. You get bored with your own voice. I get bored with myself many times a week. And we don't want to mistake that for we should give up. We want to get curious, go back to the original spark, see if we need to extend our mind by some of the ways that Annie's going to talk about as we go forward and, of course, in the book. So once I had that idea, and I, it, it's not my idea originally, it's, it's an idea that emerged from philosophy called the extended mind. When I first read that paper, there's a seminal paper that came out in 1998 that I read you know, many years later, but I did have a moment of revelation because it was like, oh, this pulls together all these things I've been seeing and that I knew in some way were related. Yes, but this is the idea that pulls it all together and into a unified kind of whole. And that was, yeah, that was very exciting. I also love this joke from Emo Phillips in the book. I used to think that the brain was the most wonderful organ in my body. Then I realized who was telling me this. (laughs) Right. I mean, we're a culture that just fetishizes the brain almost. We glorify it. We treat it like it's a sacred object. And yet we know that the brain lets us down a lot. It's like, we know both these things, but we don't put them together. Unfortunately, I think we end up blaming ourselves a lot when, the oh, brain, yes. you know, when we don't, can't pay attention or we can't remember something we, we think, oh, I must not be that smart, you know, instead of realizing that what we're coming up against are the limits of the biological brain and that they apply to all of us. But I grew up with undiagnosed learning differences or, and I didn't get diagnosed until I was almost done with college. Mm. So I have so much a deep story that I'm dumb. Mm. And so much of your book just made me even take another layer of that shame around how my brain works and how you can work with your brain. And I loved the term extra neural resources. I'm like, yeah, I can Mm -hmm. have those. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
I'm so glad to hear that, Jen. I grew up, there's a lot of learning disability that runs in my family. And I grew up around people who were incredibly bright and struggled in school in, you know, in traditional Mm -hmm. kinds of schooling. And what I came to realize in researching this book is that it's the people who learn differently, who are really the, the champions, the, the super people of, of the extended mind, because they've had to think outside the brain because their brains might not work in quite the same way that conventional school expects the brain to. So they've had to find all these workarounds and incredibly resourceful approaches. So they are actually the champion athletes, you know, of the extended mind. And I think there's actually a lot that we, everybody can learn from their strategies. So let's talk about introspection. So mm-hmm. I'm one of those people who is naturally, I think, introspective. Mm-hmm. I'm a fidgeter. I'm a, why, why do people sit still? I, mm-hmm. when I lead retreats, I start every day optional with freeform dance. <laughs> like oh, I'm cool. just such a believer yeah. instinctively in yeah. understanding our bodies, but can you define it for us? Cause no one knows that word when I'm now no. sprinkling in conversation after reading I the book. Know. <laughs> I know it's an unusual word. It's a scientific and technical kind of word, introception, introception. We all know what it is when I call it gut feelings, right? I mean, we all know what it means to feel something, to know something, but it's not coming from your head. It's it's coming from somewhere else in your body. And I think it's unfortunate, you know, that in our culture, we're encouraged to ignore or suppress or push aside the feelings that arise in our body, especially when we're trying to do complex mental work. The idea is that like, oh, you know, I've just got to be a brain. I've just got to push aside all those bodily feelings and focus, you know, and it's just the opposite of what we should be doing. Can you tell us the story about the Wall Street traders? A man named John Coates, who was uh, worked for many years as a trader on Wall Street, and he noticed, this was more of an anecdotal observation, but he noticed that it wasn't the Ivy League graduates or the super brilliant, you know, geniuses who were making the profitable trades on his trading floor. There was another group of people who were really good. They weren't necessarily intellectually distinguished in that way, but they had something else going on. And he was so curious about this and so intrigued that he actually went back to school to get a PhD in physiology to figure out he had a, he had a hunch, I guess he had a gut feeling that there was maybe something about being attuned to the body that was, that was accounting for the success of these people who you might not expect to do so well, but they were. His studies led to research performed on traders in, on a London trading floor. First of all, compared to regular people on the street, these were, these were very, you know, by definition already very successful experienced traders. They were much more interoceptively attuned than the average guy in the street. And the way that was determined was by this heartbeat detection test. Could they feel their own heartbeats and and say when their heart was beating? It turned out they were really good at that. And then within the group of traders that were studied by John Coates and his colleagues, those who were especially good at sensing their own heartbeat and, and tuning into their own bodily sensations, they made more money and they had longer careers in this profession where, where there's a lot of turnover. They've been able to flourish and survive in this doggy dog kind of world, not by using their brains, but by being very attuned to their internal bodily sensations, which I just think is such not at all what we think, you know, is the basis for brilliance in, in finance, for example, but it's about. And they're not aware that they were good at this. 
It wasn't they, something they trained for or oh, no. talked. It was just something naturally occurring to them that they figured out. A- they might have attributed it to a, a gut sense that they, mm-hmm. you know, we, we do talk about people having kind of good intuition or, or mm-hmm. um, you know, good gut feelings. And they learn to trust those. They learn to, to tune into them, to trust them, to act on them rather than pushing them away. And that was the basis of their success. Rather than pushing them away. Yeah. This idea of interoception and gut feelings and paying attention to and taking care of and using our body as a way to extend our mind. I, I can't express, I think I am expressing in this podcast how extraordinary this is for me because so much of this I have known intuitively, included in my work in different ways and of course in my own creative process. But to see the research behind it and how beautifully Annie laid it out and all the different ways that she gives us to work with the body inside of the book, it's just been a game changer for me. So where are you denying your body's role? Where are you walking around like you're just a head on a stick and forgetting that, oh yeah, I have a body that has all this information for me and all these ways for me to extend my mind and refresh my cognitive processes. Where do you bypass that? I know for me, one of the things I I do is I get sort of irritated that my body wants to move or fidget, that I need to take another break, that I need to put on music and dance. And I'm trying to just embrace that impulse more, knowing it will actually maybe make me more creative and productive in a less uh, grindy, burny out way and in a more joyful way. So there's something else in that part of interoception in the book. And you guys, this is just the very beginning of the book. Like this is, that's why it's such, <laughs> so rich and there's so much to learn and so much to use here. But you talk about how it can help us with resiliency. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could give us an idea how it might help us with creative disappointment or even the fear of creative disappointment. So yeah. many of us don't create out loud because we're so afraid we're going to bomb. Yeah, that is a pitfall of the creative life for sure. Well, one interesting thing about the relationship between emotion and interoception is that it's our bodily feelings that are the building blocks of emotion. When a feeling comes over us like disappointment or frustration, we just attend to that top level feeling and we don't always dig down to see where, where that's coming from. What The fact is that we're actually constructing that emotion out of the raw materials of our body bodily sensations. And there are ways that we can kind of get back down to the fundamental of the, cause the body is really the, the most fundamental thing, right? I mean, we can get back down to what am I actually feeling? Is it my heart feeling heavy? Is am I feeling butterflies in my stomach? And we can then reappraise that as a more constructive or more helpful emotion. Like we might say, oh, this feeling of nervousness, this is actually not that different from a feeling of excitement. You know, maybe I could think about this in terms of, you know, I'm really excited to go on stage and talk about my ideas, for example. Interestingly, the one thing you you really can't do or the one thing that really won't work, you know, this is a tendency a lot of us have. Say you're nervous and you're feeling the, the racing heartbeat, the butterflies in your stomach. You tell yourself, calm down. Calm down. But that is pushing your bodily sensations away, trying to quash them and make them go away. And it really doesn't work. So instead, take those feelings that are there that are part of your experience and say, I'm really excited. You know, I'm really, I'm really excited to get out there and share my ideas with people. And that's a much more constructive way of dealing with those bodily sensations that turn into emotions. Another piece of this part of the book is about what kinds of movement are best for creative thinking. Mm -hmm. And I was a little surprised by that. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, movement was good, but that a certain pace of movement is best. 
Yeah, I think of it as kind of a toolbox of movements because as you say, there's different kinds of movements that can put us into a different frames of mind. So there's, well, you mentioned fidgeting, Jen. I try not to fidget <laughs> when I'm recording because my, my chair makes noise, it makes but noise, it's so right, hard for right. me to sit still. <laughs> right. Well, it's actually not a natural state for human beings to sit still. We're meant to move. And yet in schools and in the workplaces, we have this idea that to, in order to do real thinking work or creative work, we need to sit still and focus. But where did that idea come from, Annie? You know, I have to think it has to do with just classroom management. You know, it's it's easier to have kids sitting still. I also think it goes back even, you to know, the industrial revolution and, and before that to the separation in Western culture between, yeah, between brain body. and body, yeah. mind and body that like they're separate and they're not, they're, they're very intimately intertwined. And in fact, this, these kinds of small movements we make when we're say, when we're working at a standing desk as at opposed to sitting down, those help us regulate our alertness and our arousal level, our physiological arousal so that we, and that's what fidgeting does too. It's like this very precisely calibrated way of, of managing how alert you are. So it may be that if you're feeling a little drowsy or a little bored, you know, you start moving you know, there's, there's a section in the book about all the different kinds of objects that people use, which is a, a kind of creativity in itself. But then there are other kinds of movements like a more medium intensity activity, like a kind of brisk walk that, again, really uh, the research shows that it really enhances our ability to think. And so unfortunately, we now, because there's so many diversions available on our computers and our phones, when we take a break, we often just kind of sit there and do more scrolling or more texting or whatever, you know, and that kind of activity just continues to draw down the cognitive resources that we need to do our work. So then we we, after our break, we come back and we're just actually a little more frazzled than we were before. Whereas if we took a brisk walk, if we took what, what public health experts call a movement break instead of like a coffee break, you know, actually a break to, to move your body, you return to your work in a different and improved frame of mind, you know, and that's especially true if, if you do that walk outside, but that's, that's another thing we can talk about the, I, the importance of nature. I, I feel like, and maybe I misread this in the book that some of the data said that more than a brisk walk is not as conducive to creativity. Well, actually, so that's a third category is the high intensity, you know, really completely tire yourself out, very vigorous, sustained exercise that can actually induce a state that scientists call hypofrontality. It's the frontal part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex that is our like inner judge and critic. And that can really get in the way of creativity. As we know, you know, if you're judging your own ideas before you even have a chance to play them out, hypo means low or diminished. So when you exercise to the point of hypofrontality, you actually diminish the activity of that inner critic, the prefrontal cortex. So that seems um, like a good idea. It does. If you can exercise so vigorously that you kind of, you know, it, it actually has some, the state of hypofrontality happens, not just in that after that kind of intense exercise, but also like when we're dreaming or when we're having a drug trip, it's like a recognized state that the brain gets into that is actually really conducive to creativity because that's when all those ideas and associations and memories can blend together in a way that's not constrained by our usual kind of rigid thinking. 
because I do get a lot of good ideas when I run, although sometimes I come back and I've written them down and recorded them in my phone. And they're like ideas that I got when I smoked <laughs> pot in college. <laughs> yeah, they seem so profound at the time. And then you're like, mm, not so much. Hmm. So my, my dear listeners, I realize that I have been so deeply involved in this book that I really didn't ask the most basic question, which is for you to define what an extended mm. mind is. Mm. I just mm. jumped right into all the things yeah. I'm obsessing about. No, I, that's good. I think we've given your listeners some examples. The idea is that in our culture, we imagine that thinking happens inside the head, that it's the brain that does the thinking. That's It almost goes without saying like, well, where does thinking happen? It happens inside the head. And there are these two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, who said, no, actually the mind extends beyond the head. It actually incorporates all these extra neural resources, meaning, you know, outside of the brain resources like our body bodies, like the spaces in which we learn and work, like our relationships with other people. And, you know, maybe most obviously, or, or the example that's easiest to understand is our devices. Our devices were actually kind of designed to extend the mind. We know that we download effectively our memory to our devices all the time, right? Like, does anybody remember yes. phone yeah, numbers last, anymore? <laughs> right. Last night I was talking about your book to friends and they're like, oh, you mean my phone? Right. It's like an extension of your mind. So that's a pretty good way into the idea of the extended mind, because we do kind of get that our phones are like an extension of our minds. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more of a leap to recognize that, oh, actually your body is part of your thinking process. The spaces in which you're creating is part of your thinking process. And the people that you talk to and interact with are part of your thinking process. It takes a little getting used to because we are such an individualistic society mm -hmm. and we think everything happens sealed inside ourselves, but it's such a liberating idea once you really start seeing that the mind is way bigger than just the head. It incorporates, you know, all these other resources and allows the brain to do things that it couldn't do on its own. It allows the brain to kind of overachieve. Yeah, because one of the things that you said that also gave me such, I don't know, comfort is that researchers have a growing awareness of the brain's limits and the human brain is limited right. in its ability, friends, to pay attention, right? How often are we beating ourselves up for how we pay attention? Limited its capacity to remember. Oh yeah. Limited <laughs> its facility with abstract mm -hmm. concepts, mm -hmm. persistent and challenging tasks. And the idea that I can create ways to do this work or create conditions it's a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're so used to, you know, there's these ideas in our culture that are very popular, like grit and like mm -hmm. the growth mindset. I mean, which are all really internally oriented. Like it's, you've got to muster it from within. And, mm -hmm. and if you can't, then maybe you're just not that gritty or you're just not that strong, you know, right. but actually or that's smart or, or that's smart. Right. And that's a shame because actually it makes so much more sense to work sort of from the outside in to create the conditions, as you were saying, that put our brain in the right frame of mind for thinking and creating. And that's so much under our control, whereas the fallibility, the flaws and foibles of our brains are not really under our control. And it can lead to a lot of frustration to just keep driving the brain ever harder. A lot of personalizing. I mean, a lot of the work that I do with yes. people is trying to take it out of the personal. In fact, I made up a little phrase yesterday for that keynote that I gave and I had everybody rub their temples and say, it's not personal, it's my brain. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But if you can remember, oh yeah, my brain is just wanting to keep me defended, keep me safe. 
Mm. My body's sending me signals to my insula. Is that the correct way to say it? Insula? That is the interoceptive hub in the brain. Right. Yeah. That right. collects all those signals from the body. Yeah. yeah. And I just need to remember that I'm an animal here. Yes, totally. And I like to think of it in terms of thinking about what the brain evolved to do. Well, yes, you know, yes. it did not evolve to think. learn calculus no, no, or write a book or, or no, yeah. it evolved to sense and move the body. It evolved to navigate through physical 3d space and it evolved to, it, it evolved to use tools and manipulate tools and to interact with other human beings. But the irony is we spend all day expecting it to do these other things that it's really not very well suited to do. So the more we can leverage those natural human strengths in the service of what, you know, these complex tasks that we want the brain to accomplish, then the easier and the more effective it will be. Yeah. And I also uh, was reading recently that, you know, the brain's main job is allostasis. Mm-hmm, I'm just right. like, I'm like, I'm, so every now and then I'm just like thinking all my brain cares about, is there enough glucose right now? Is there yes. enough salt? <laughs> it doesn't care if I'm doing a good balance. job with this interview. Right. <laughs> it doesn't care if I'm asking good questions. Right. It's like, right. now let's go have a snack. So you've been talking a little bit about space. That was a mind blowing chapter for me too. Mm-hmm. I'm very sensitive to space, mm-hmm. but again, it, it would never have been the kind of thing that I'd pay attention to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a way that like this could help me be more creative or not. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that neuroarchitecture existed. Which is the study of how built interiors affect the way we think, the way the brain operates. I wouldn't blame yourself for that, Jen, because again, I think it goes back to the assumptions embedded in our culture. There's this incredibly common metaphor or analogy that we all employ all the time without even realizing it, which compares the brain to to a computer. You know, <laughs> we think of the brain as a computer, but that's such a flawed analogy. It's so wrong headed in so many ways. And one major flaw is that, you know, a computer works the same way. My laptop here works the same way, whether it's here in my office, or if I were to take it to a park and sit on a bench and use it there. But the human brain is not like that. We're oh, really that's ex- brilliant. That's exquisitely brilliant. sensitive to context. My computer doesn't know where it's at, but I do. You do. And it, <laughs> and it affects the way you think and the way your brain operates. So I think that metaphor that is really leads us down a lot of wrong paths. You know, computers don't have friends either. And computers... <laughs> Computers don't have bodies. And so there's so many ways in which that computer analogy leaves out all the things that make us human and that are really are the wellsprings of our creativity. What kind of spaces work best for us to create in? Yes. Well, there's a handful of principles that contribute to making a space a good place for thinking and creating. One is that it's really important for us to feel a sense of ownership and control over our space. It's making me worried about some trends I see happening post-pandemic when offices are saying, you know, we're not going to have assigned desks anymore, let alone enclosed offices. We're not even going to have assigned desks. You just come in and take whatever desk is available. That kind of generic space that's not endowed with any of your stuff and any of your, any of the meaningful objects that you might keep around you. And that isn't really yours in a sense. I think that's really going to undermine a lot of people's productivity and effectiveness at at the office. But then, of course, at home, where a lot of us are now working (laughs) for the time being, we have the opportunity to create a space that we have ownership and control over. And also that, as I was saying, has these cues of identity, which is basically objects remind us of who we are and what we're doing. And then also cues of belonging that remind us that we belong to meaningful groups, especially ones that you know are related to, to the work we're trying to do in that space. 
You also talked about the need for walls. For walls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, I mean, the worst invention ever is the open office. And the I idea never work in an open no. office. <laughs> well, there was an idea behind the open office, which was, oh, we're just going to take down the walls and throw everybody together. And there'll be all these creative collisions and people will, you know, start talking. And interestingly, research shows that people are less likely to talk in this wide open office where they have no privacy, where they are going to be overheard by other people or feel like they're bothering other people. So actually, people retreat and they put their headphones on and interaction and communication among colleagues actually goes down when you move from enclosed offices to an open office. I have worked at home. I'm a writer, freelance writer who works at home for many, many years. And I don't think I would last a day in an open office. Again, going back to our nature as human beings, we're attracted to novelty. We're attracted to sound and movement, especially those made by other people because we're such social creatures. So to tell ourselves, well, just focus on your work. Don't pay any attention to what's going on. It, it's not a reasonable request, you know? So again, we need to take external elements like walls and doors that can take that kind of distraction away from us and give us back all that mental bandwidth that we can then apply to our work. My husband gets annoyed in the pre-pandemic world when we would go into a place with a TV on, but I can't look away from it. Oh God. I can't. He's like, why can't you look away from it? And I said, I don't know, but I can't. That's the way we're wired. Think of yourself in a forest being aware of like little snapping twigs and are, are there predators around? I mean, clearly I would have survived and he wouldn't have. He would, would have, have been, been lunch. Meat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Amazing idea in the book that I loved was the history and for so many cultures, for so many centuries, the importance of imitation. And oh. how it's gotten such a bad rap in modern times and, and especially in, in hyper-modern times. Yeah. I love this quote. The naturalists of the 19th century described imitation as the habits of children, women, and savages. Yeah. yeah, they really didn't think too highly of it because originality was held up as ideal. And of course, originality is great, but how do you get there? You know, how do you get to the point where you have the skills to come up with a, an original and fresh idea. The ancients and cultures after that, not so much our own culture, understood that the best way to get that grounding in your field, in your discipline is by imitating the masters, you know, and education used to be built around the process of, of imitation, imitating and emulating and there was no shame attached to that. It wasn't like you were copying because we have such shame attached to, to we that. We do, now. we do. It's, I, I don't know if this was my term, but I, it, it came into my brain, toxic originality, stopping so many people from creating. Mm. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. You Creativity is com, combinatorial. I can't say that word. Combinatorial. Yeah, Thank you're, you. <laughs> taking, you're taking pieces, putting them together in a new way, but you have right. to know what, have a really deep knowledge of what those pieces are. And Imitation is the best way to get inside of that and to understand what it was like to create for the original creator to create that. And imitation fell out of favor in education because there was a fear that it would quash uh, originality and creativity, that kids would just be, students would just be in a rote way, kind of producing what other people have done. But I think that's a real misunderstanding of how the process works. You have to master those building blocks through imitation and emulation before you can do your, add your own twist to it. And it takes time to do that. I think that's another reason why it's, it's being lost even more because it takes time to imitate others and study. Absolutely. 
So just staying on this idea of apprenticeship and mm. imitation, I mm. loved this idea of cognitive apprenticeship. And I was yes. wondering, like, could we explore for a minute, how would we create those for ourselves? Yes. Yeah. I, th I agree. I think it's a really cool term because it acknowledges that the traditional apprenticeship, which of course is really effective way of teaching and learning that was used for centuries, it works because the work done by the the master, the you know whoever the the professional is, can be seen by the apprentice. You know, if if it's we're talking about a tailor or in a blacksmith or a shipbuilder, the expert can demonstrate and the novice can watch and then maybe try it themselves and be guided by the by the expert. And that's a really great way to learn. In our day, most of the work that we do is mental, is internal. And so it's more complicated and it requires the expert to make him or herself a much more legible example for the novice to, you know, we, I think we often blame the learner when they don't, when they don't. Get uh, yes. <laughs> yes. And we blame ourselves or, yeah. or our teachers blame us. Or Yes. When really the responsibility lies with the expert to make their expertise legible to the beginner. And that requires a kind of empathy, often a kind of remembering what it was like to be an, a novice, because when we become experts, the way that that information, the, the way that our, our knowledge and our expertise is stored and expressed in our minds be, is different. And for example, we start chunking, chunking steps together, mm -hmm. right, or pieces of information together. And then we just throw out those chunks and the um, and the novice is like, wait, what? Uh, you know, I don't I don't get it. So There's but a that's big not piece the novice's fault. Yeah, you just went from a to M and like you skipped all those steps in between. And that's not the novice's fault. That's the expert's responsibility to break it down. I think one of the keys in a cognitive apprenticeship is as much as possible to talk out loud and narrate for the beginner, the novice, what is going on in your head as you, as the expert does what they do so well. And that it, it is difficult because expertise by its nature, it, it becomes so well-practiced that we almost don't think about it anymore. I'm going to say something now. It's going to really creep you out, but I want to come to your office when you are writing and I want you to narrate what's going what's on. Going on in my doing head. it. Yes. Especially yeah. the, the kind of writing that you do and the amount of research that you so beautifully using so many great examples and stories meld together. That is the mm. hardest kind of writing to do for me. Mm. And I am so fascinated mm. by that mental process. I, there's, there's so many things that I would love to follow people through their day and have them narrate what's going on. It really, it really would be interesting, wouldn't it? There might even be the fear that you would kind of lose whatever the magic is. If you kind of look at it too closely, probe it too carefully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there, there's that fear. Yeah. It's interesting to think about reverse engineering that. I mean, that's obviously a ridiculous example, but to reverse engineer everybody, something you're struggling to learn, where can you hear it? I mean, I guess that's why masterclass mm -hmm. is popular. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We know, where can you hear someone breaking it down for you or right. who can you reach out to? I think we're afraid to do that. Mm -hmm. As novices, as, as beginners, we don't want to look stupid. You know, mm -hmm. we want to feel like, Hey, I got this, you know, I, okay. You show me once I got it, you know, but actually, you know, this is where asking really probing questions, including questions that might seem stupid, you know, but you don't know what you don't know. I think it's a, it's a real challenge because our whole education and workplace training 
systems are based on experts teaching novices. And in a way, experts are the worst people to teach because they have so automatized their knowledge that it's hard for them to actually even articulate what they know because it's so well-practiced. Um, and that's how they can be experts. That's how they can do what they do so effortlessly because they're no longer having to think about it in that granular way. In fact, yeah. there's um, interesting research that suggests that a near peer, like someone who's like mm-hmm. at your level, but maybe one step ahead of you is the best kind of instructor because they do know more than you do, but they they were in your shoes recently enough that they can remember what it was like and they can anticipate the kind of questions that you have or the kind of confusions you have. So another favorite chapter in the book, I'm obviously your biggest fan, is thinking with natural spaces. Can you give us a couple of the things that we might do when we're stuck in our creativity or especially that dull feeling? I've had so much of that in the last year with mm-hmm. the pandemic, that languishing that Adam Grant wrote about. Yes. Oh yeah. That really hit a nerve. Well, I think, you know, I think the extended mind does have something to say to this because we've all been like brains in front of screens for like 14 months. Right. And I think it's maybe given us a sense of how very limiting that is and how, how much we're missing when we miss out on bodily movements on going to stimulating places instead of just staying in our same old houses. We have an amazing opportunity now that the pandemic is receding. You know, we can embrace all these credible resources that are available to us again, you know, seeing people in person and, and having that electric kind of interaction that just doesn't happen when you're on a screen. I mean, except for you and me right now. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the natural stuff, I think, you know, one benefit of the pandemic, if I can call it that, is that a lot of us did start to get outside a lot more, especially back when that was like the only thing we could do. I started taking a lot of walks around my neighborhood and a lot more hikes and bike rides. And I really found it's true that there's what the research says about how being in urban settings and being in built settings, those are kind of unnatural settings for the mind to to occupy. You know, it's got a lot of sharp angles. You know, if you're in a city, there's a lot of fast moving things and loud sounds and opposite of all that is nature where there is movement, but it's kind of diffuse and there's sounds, but they're, they're muted and they're often repetitive in a pleasing way, like birdsong or the sound of waves on a beach. And all these things allow our attentional capacities to relax and be replenished. You know, I find that we think so much about how do I manage my attention? How do I spend it? How do I focus it? But we never think about how do I fill it back up? Pleated, how do I replenish it? And being outside is really the best way to do that. And you wrote about if you need a more structured experience for those of you who were like, mm-hmm. this all sounds a little hippy dippy to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. You wrote about an awareness plan. That's a strand of research that suggests that there is a style of being outdoors that involves what's called soft gazing, where you just kind of take it all in and you, you let it wash over you. And that can be very restorative to your attention. But you can also take a more directed approach, which would be going outside, spending time outside with a particular question in mind. Like if I were an artist, how would I paint this scene? Or if I were to make a metaphor of what I see around me, like I'm following the path of my life, which is echoes the path of this down the beach that I'm taking, you know, thinking in terms of adding that second layer of meaning onto it can also be a way to appreciate nature and engage with it in a slightly more, as we said, structured way. I like that. It appeals to my imagination. Mm -hmm. The chapter thinking with the space of ideas, I have a giant monitor. I Mm -hmm. crave 
achieve giant mm-hmm. monitors. Mm-hmm. I cannot stand mm-hmm. working on my laptop when I traveled. My yeah. thinking feels smaller. Yes. Yes. I keep trying to tell people that, but you know, people are really obs- attached to their tiny little phones. But... <laughs> I hate my tiny little phone. Yeah, I don't like to yeah. use my phone. I feel yeah. like my thinking really gets small. I can't write. There's a lack of flu- fluency. You know, again, going back to what we were saying earlier, like the body is this incredible resource in terms of its ability to navigate through space. And if we can arrange information so that it's kind of like a landscape that we're navigating through, then we have access to this whole suite of human abilities that are wasted when we're just glued to our tiny little screens, you know? So that might be your really big monitor where you're, you're actually kind of, you might be moving your head or turning your torso here and there. And you, that brings into play your spatial memory. Like, I know I put this information over here or, you know, you can't do that with a tiny screen where it's just one one window on top of another. Or it might be a an off, offline kind of arrangement of post-it notes where you're actually manipulating and moving around ideas as if they were objects. Because again, we're so primed to interact with physical material things. And when we, the more we can make our ideas into things that we move around, the more easily we're able to think about them. Did you do that with the writing this book? How did you I organize did. it? I did. Cause as you noted, there's so many research, um, <laughs> so many strands that I was pulling from. I just, my head would have exploded if I tried to do it all in my head. You know, I think we try to do way too much in our head and chapter you mentioned thinking with the space of ideas. I talk about how we actually should be offloading our mental contents as much as possible, putting them out into physical space, whether it's, you know, a whiteboard or an arrangement of post-it notes, or even even a physical model of the kind that like architects use, you know, Mm -hmm. because then you can move your body around it, see it from different angles. I always think it's funny that we think it's okay for like kindergartners to use like manipulables and like to learn, but then we're like, that's kids stuff, you know, like leave that behind because real, real geniuses, they do it in their heads. They're like, it's all, it's all happening up here, but that's really a mistake. I think. So did you use post-it notes? Did you make piles? Did you do 17 different things? I'm so curious. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Post-it notes are my offloading tool of choice. (laughs) Yeah. Because I do like to move things around and I have also tried slips of paper, printing out lists basically, and then cutting up the items information into slips. And I, I have a big dining room table. So I was like rearranging them all, but then I had nightmares of like the front door opening and all my slips (laughs) like in the jumbled order than, you know, no longer helping me at all think about where things should be. So post-it notes are, are good for that. For all your source material, do you organize that digitally so you can find it later or? I have a database. I know this is into the weeds, but I find this stuff really fascinating. Like, how, know, how, how, do you, how do you do it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I have a very detailed database that has thousands and thousands of studies in it, including the, not just the citation information, but like the key pieces of information from each study. So that, you know, because again, we expect our brains to do so much and it's so easy to have read something and know that it's important and you, you need that piece of information, but where is it, you know? And so the more we can get good at offloading that information, having a way that we can find it again, these kind of external memory, external, you know, structures that takes the load off our brain. And then our brains can engage in those higher level cognitive activities like reflection and analysis and creativity, all the things that only we can do, you know, but we can have our 
our computers or our external structures do the more like grunt work for us. So is that like a, a wiki, a wiki that you created or? It's a, it's a software program that was developed for graduate students who are writing their dissertation it's called EndNote. And I've used it for both my previous books before this one. And it was just a, at this point to learn a new system. And I keep, I, I'm in a writer's group, actually, that's another very useful mental extension, this group of, of fellow writers. Sometimes somebody will say, I, I'm, I'm using this incredible new software program and everyone should try it. And I'm just like, no, oh God, do I have to learn something? <laughs> learn a new system? I don't think I can invest. There's a lot time. of, oper- there's a lot of opportunity cost in learning that new system. Yeah. It has so, to be pretty good. Briefly touch on the chapter thinking with groups because you yes. mentioned the, the writer's group. Yes. I have to tell you, I hope nobody nefarious reads that chapter. Because they can use those hacks to kind of influence their own ends. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's something slightly creepy about you know (laughs) I I write about how synchronized movement is, which is a part of a part of you know rituals all over the world and all through time. You know, in terms of religious rituals, in terms of military marching, and you know, it actually has it hacks this very primitive part of our brain that's like, oh, all these people are moving at in the same way at the same time as me, they're kind of part of me. I'm part of this big organism that's bigger than me. And it can make people feel very empowered. And if they have all the resources of the group at their disposal, but you're right, I think it can, it can be used for ill, but we, we won't do we that. We won't do that. Nobody, nobody nefarious read that chapter. <laughs> but I, I loved, especially in that, how we get to belong to people and we get to mm. belong to groups. Cause I think that's another thing that modern culture somehow tells us that belonging is weak or less than that goes back to the central thesis of the book that you you function best if you're in your little cranium doing your own thing right it's so wrong so we don't invest the time and the effort into you know I like really like this word that actually it doesn't sound like an academic word but it comes out of the literature groupiness like how does a assemblage of people get that quality of groupiness where you're not just an assemblage of individuals you're, you're really a group and a lot of the ways that we can get that feeling of groupiness involve doing things together in close proximity at the same time. And ideally things that are sort of embodied, like taking walks together or having emotional experiences together, or even sharing meals together. And this is something we've all missed out on for the past year. Fortunately, I think it's the way a lot of the the experiences, even apart from the pandemic, that a lot of the kinds of experiences we increasingly have in school and work are these atomized individual experiences. When we do that, we're leaving on the table all the benefits of this powerful group kind of coming together that doesn't get created in modern life often enough, I don't think. It's one of the reasons we love our neighborhood that we stumbled upon when we moved here about six years ago. It's new urbanism. So it's Mm. built around porches and our houses are Mm. close together. And we have all kinds of those group interactions in mm. ways that we just w- wouldn't in other settings. Yeah, it's oh, very wonderful. It is. And one more group question. What mm. is a meta-knowledge champion? Oh, yeah. There's this phenomenon that psychologists call transactive memory, which is, again, like interoception. It's like a fancy term, but when you think about it, you know, you're already familiar with it. With transactive memory means nobody can know everything, but within a group, if you know what other people know, you know, what their specialties are, then you have access to all that information without having to have it in your own head. You know, it multiplies your access to, to knowledge, but you have to have a clear and accurate 
accurate idea of what your team members know. And that's the transactive memory system. Those kinds of systems arise organically. I mean, I think any couple knows that like, it's <laughs> almost automatic that certain roles get mm-hmm. distributed between the two of divided between the two of you. But there are ways to make that happen more intentionally. And one would be having somebody who's in charge of making sure that everyone's mental directory is updated, keeping track of like who knows what and where tasks should ideally be directed because, oh, you know, Joe's really good at that. Or did you know that Melissa is, you know, an expert in X? So there's somebody who's in charge of maintaining that mental directory. And that's what a meta-knowledge champion is. Um, your biggest fan. This book is extraordinary. I think it is going to change so many people's experience of being creative, of being a knowledge worker, of being in this world. And I just want to ask you one last question. I'd love to ask everybody. And Mm. what do you want to learn next? Oh boy. I'll tell you, you know, I make a passing reference to this in the book, but I talk about how not everyone has equitable access to these mental extensions that help us so much to think. And so I think it's a really, it's a deeply unfair habit in our culture to attribute intelligence to people or lack of intelligence as being entirely some kind of internal fixed individual quality instead of taking into account their access to these raw materials materials of intelligent thought and how well they know how to use them. And so that's my next project, I think, is to look at that kind of inequality, which is not a kind of inequality that we're used to thinking about. We're used to thinking about wealth inequality or achievement gaps, but I'm interested in what are the differences in the terms of how much access people have to these mental extensions. That's, that's where I'm turning my thoughts now. Oh, I love that. Cause immediately what comes to mind is nature. Yeah. Oh, it's exciting. Thank you, Jen. Oh, thank you. So this interview was so exciting for me to do clearly because I'm so in love with this book and she's delightful, but also really frustrating because I felt like I couldn't bring out all of the possibilities, (laughs) all the tools that you could be using. You know, one of the things I say or remember, try to remember to say at the end of these episodes is what one thing can you take away? What one thing can you write down? One, One thing can you text someone else? so that you can really start to remember this and put it into your creative toolkit to help you create out loud. But this book is full of so many things. And so Annie has done an amazing thing for us. She has given us a Word doc that is a list of key takeaways of these practices from the book to help you be more creative and extend your mind. So just pop over to jenniferloudon.com and right there at the top you'll see podcast in the menu and just click on that. And then scroll down and find the episode with Annie Murphy Paul, okay? And you can get that fabulous download right there. And if you're not on my email list, go ahead and subscribe while you're there. You can get some more good freebies and you can find out other things that are going on behind the scenes in my work and in the podcast. So on up for that, get that uh, wonderful document courtesy of Annie. We'll be back next week with a regular scheduled episode, more amazing writers and creators and app makers and actors and musicians coming up to help us at the creative process. Thanks so much for being here. In the meantime, make sure you create out loud.